Hi, and welcome to Pure Happy Healthy. My name is Leandra Haupt, and in this podcast, I will discuss with my guests everything about modern spirituality, alternative lifestyle, and personal development. I wish you so much fun. When you ask someone what they want in life, they usually might say something like, my dream job, a nice relationship, a lot of kids, whatever it might be for you. But if you look deeper to the root, what is behind there, it is happiness. Because each person wants to be happy. That is the ultimate goal for each human, I would say. And how we get there, what it means to be happy, that can be different from each person to person. But in the end, there is a formula to becoming more happy. And Mo Gaudat is the founder of this equation. And he wrote several books on that topic, on happiness. And he dedicates big part of his life on how to be more happy himself, but also how to bring and share that happiness with the world. So he wrote all the books, he has a podcast, he is a speaker and he really shifted his life towards dedicating it to that cause after he had worked in Google for 30 years and some things in his life changed so also his path changed. And in this conversation today with Mo Gaudat, we will not only speak about happiness but go very deep into philosophy about so many different aspects of life and I rarely talked to someone in such a relaxed manner I think in that podcast and touched on so many different topics so it is really more a conversation between friends than any specific topic here and I think sometimes it's these simple or <laughs> maybe not so simple conversations that can really bring so much value and so much knowledge and can be so inspiring. I've also been on his podcast so if you haven't checked that out you can go to slow-mo and listen to the episode where I speak and obviously all the other episodes as well. And it's interesting because I feel like Mo and I are really different personalities and we also don't agree always on each thing. But that is the beauty about the world, no? that we have different opinions and then we let other people have their different opinions. And especially in these times right now, I think it's more important than ever to acknowledge that people don't have the same opinions and that it's okay to have different opinions and maybe I want to invite everyone here to yeah, stay, step back and don't be so hard on your point but maybe try to be open to receive what other people want whatever that is about because that is really what we need even more in this world at the moment to find back our inner peace and find back our happiness. So yeah, without further ado, I will get started with this episode now and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Hey, hi, thank you so, so much for having me. Yeah, my first question to my interview guests is always, what did you have for breakfast this morning? 
what did I have for breakfast? So we, uh, we, uh, I'm in the Middle East. This is the month of Ramadan. So breakfast for us is at uh, 6.45 p.m. because we fast through the day. So we fast from sunrise to sunset. And I made a uh, vegan soup, actually, uh, just on the topic of vegan. So I um, uh, made uh, just vegetables, basically, and some soy sauce. And that's it, really. Uh, trying to stay healthy for my age. Uh, I'm, I think I'm going to become very hungry in a bit, but for now, I feel amazing. So soup for breakfast. Wow. Okay. I always admire people who can do the fasting, especially in the Middle East where you have, you were just talking about it, you have temperatures of 35 degrees and up. So no water the whole day. Is that right? So no water, no uh, food and uh, no intimacy, no sex. And so, uh, But, but it's actually an amazing, amazing practice. It really, really is. I mean, there are a few things that people uh, don't realize. So, so Ramadan is once, from one side, it's the month of fasting and reflection and so on. But it also, it's a very social month in the Middle East where people uh, meet and get together for iftar, for that breakfast meal. And so, you know, people see each other. Restrictions on COVID-19 are not that prevalent here in the Middle East. So people actually meet for, uh, for breakfast. Uh, the problem is they eat too much and they eat lots of sweets and they eat because everyone is bringing in some kind of dessert uh, as they go and visit others. Um, and, and because, you know, you eat too much, you really have to drink a lot to, to feel not thirsty. I do it the other way around. I actually eat very, very little. Uh, so it's uh, food is not the challenge at all. So, you know, it's almost a bit like intermittent fasting with a bit of reduced calories. I think in general, I'd probably be eating maybe 1,200, 1,300 calories a day. But I drink three liters of water in the, in the time between sunset and sunrise. And I sleep really well. I reduce caffeine completely. And, you know, I actually stop caffeine altogether. And all in all, it feels incredibly healthy. It's almost like taking a detox if you want, but it also feels incredibly spiritual when you really uh, get into the experience, especially in the last 10 days. So, you know, your body can take the fast for the first 20 days. By the, by the remaining 10 days, you start to feel, hey, this is actually quite a lot. There are people that live like that all the time. You know, you start to actually realize what it's like to be in poverty, in famine, in, you know, in an in a, um, uh, immigrant's camp, or, you know, you really, really start to feel for what you don't have. And somehow it's just, it just creates an incredible connection. It really puts everything in perspective. You suddenly completely recognize all of the blessings that you have, even if that blessing is just a sip of water when you wake up in the morning, right? Uh, you start to, to, to recognize the blessings that you have, even if it's an apple whenever you want to eat, right? And, and suddenly, uh, you know, it just puts everything into where it should be. Hmm. It is so interesting that you brought up the aspect that it's also a very spiritual experience because I think each religion on this planet has that time of fast and including also a spiritual beliefs and also people now going into the intermediate fasting, as you were saying. Um, so there must be something about that, as you also said, like the, this detox feeling and also the gratitude, the gratitude for what you already have, or maybe having this feeling for other people who maybe don't have enough food. Um, so very interesting how all the religions and even this spiritual aspect of it is so interconnected and yeah, such a powerful experience. Yeah. 
it's it's funny really because I think most most spiritual teachings more or less follow the same path, right? So you know, Muslims and Jews would would pray five times a day. Uh, you know, um, um, Hindus and Buddhists would meditate uh, a lot, right? And and you know, both of them are different. They appear on the outside to be different exercises, but they are really one and the same. Eh? They're they're your ability to spend time. Uh, away from the rest of the world and away from your brain, focusing on something other than your inner thoughts. And, and it's quite interesting when you, th you think about that. F fasting has been, I think, in general, a very valuable practice. I, I would probably say less in general has always been a very valuable practice in spirituality. So the less that you have, the more that you think is something that is, uh, you know, systematically showing up everywhere, right? So, you know, if, 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 you, if you take uh, monks, for example, who would, uh, you know, leave everything behind and for some sometimes, you know, for the advanced ones, will we'll do a three to four years, um, you know, uh, isolation sort of, you know, to retreats, to, to reflect and to meditate and to learn and to study and so on and so forth. When, you know, other uh, practices would require you to fast when, you know, uh, some, some sects of Christianity, for example, would require you to uh, to fast several months a, a year, even though not water. Uh, others would, you know, like Islam would require you to fast uh, a month of the year and sometimes, you know, every two, two days a week or something like that. And it, it's, it's, it's just the idea of emptying your life, you know, removing things from your life so that you can actually have space uh, to sit down, reflect and think about the things that matter. And, and it's, it's well known that, you know, retreats or fasting or, you know, time alone, uh, which I think was was enforced on all of us during the lockdowns, uh, are sometimes the big aha moments in one's life. Is that a motto that you live by, like emptying your life and being quite oh, minimalist yeah. and living on a very modest? I, I try very, very hard. I mean, modest, I think I've achieved a long time ago. So, I mean, I've, I've been very blessed in my life. I worked at Google for a long time and I made a lot of money in the stock market. And, you know, uh, there were times where I lived the fancy life. Now I wear, you know, shirts really and my pair of jeans. And I, you know, I really need very, very little. I'm living in the smallest apartment I've ever rented in my life. And, uh, you know, I furnished it as minimalist as I can, but of course, as a gamer, I needed a big screen TV and a quite, uh, and, a, and, a, and a very powerful Xbox. Uh, but, uh, you know, at, uh, <laughs> at the end of the day, I, I, call, I call me more of an essentialist, I think, than a minimalist. So or I only try to bring things in my life that have a function. I don't try to buy anything that is branded or just to, you know, show up or anything fancy and so on. I also have a practice of attempting, even though I fail, to uh, give away 10 things every week. So uh, I would walk around my house and I, you know, my little apartment and I would try to find 10 things that I can give away. And, you know, very quickly you start running out of 10 things after a few <laughs> weeks, but you'll be surprised. Uh, you'll be surprised, honestly. I mean, if you skip a couple of weeks and then you try to look again, you start to find things again. We We... we we live in a very consumerist world. Uh, it's, you know, even, even as, we, as I try really, really, really hard not to consume, uh, you know, every now and then I find myself buying something on Amazon or walking through a supermarket and just saying, ah, I, that's exactly the thing I need. 
And then after a while, because the apartment is small, I, I start to feel that it's, you know, bulging with things. And so I, I throw away. I'm, I either throw things away or give them away. Even my simple T-shirts, I don't keep them for too long. I give them for people who need them before they get worn out. And you know, I think it's a, it's a good way of living. Wow, that is such a powerful statement and such a powerful practice that you have the rule of giving away 10 things a week. So what is the thought or the idea behind that? What, what's, uh, yeah, is there like a spiritual practice to you or something personal behind I, that? Uh, less, less, less is more is definitely a, a way of life. But I, I, think, I think the most important thing for most people to realize is You know, you go through two stages in your life. You go through the stage where you really can't have everything that you want. And so you keep craving things, believing that they make you happy. I was fortunate enough that by my early 30s, I had my middle age crisis, which basically meant I had everything I wanted and uh, or I ever dreamt of, but I couldn't really enjoy them. I didn't find any... Uh, you know, is this, is this it? Like, okay, so I waited so long to get this fancy car. And then what do you do when you get in a car? You look at the road. It's just like the other car, right? And so suddenly, you, if, you, if you're paying attention, you start to realize, actually, that doesn't make sense. You know, why do we chase all of those things? Now, the, the, the practice of, ten, uh, of, of take, giving away things, by the way, I fail huh? very, very, very frequently. I fail to find any things to give away because my judgment is I look for things that are either not giving me joy or are not essential. So, so after that exercise, in a few weeks, everything that you have around is either giving you joy or is essential. Hmm? But, but that the exercise itself is the practice. Hmm? It's, not, it's not the 10 things. Huh? It's walking around and questioning item by item if they give you joy or if they are essential. Right? And, and as you do that, you, you, you learn two very, very spiritual uh, teachings. One is detachment, the idea that... You own things, but things don't own you, which I think is one of the most powerful practices to be happy and successful in life. And, and the second is compassion, which is to say, well, if it's here and it's taking space in my home, but I'm not really enjoying it and I'm not using it, right? Essentially, it's very easy to judge. If you haven't used it for a couple of weeks, you probably are never going to use it, right? And so, you know, if, if, if it's here and I'm not using it, maybe someone else will use it. You know, if those if those shorts that I've been keeping and telling myself I will lose weight uh, and and wear them, you know, okay, give them to someone, and when you lose weight, buy another pair. You know, it's it really uh, you start to really question why would you keep things stagnant in your home without a life when they can be alive and used and enjoyed by someone else. It's it's a bit like, you know, the analogy I wrote in my book, Soul for Happy, was, you know, water is water, but if it's running and it's a, in a river, it's pure and it's fresh and you can actually scoop it and drink it, right? If it's, however, stale and just sitting somewhere and not moving, it becomes a swamp and it smells and it, you know, it just becomes dark and, and, and not enjoyable. And I think this is true with things, you know, things that you keep in your home and you, you do nothing with hmm, are really dark. They're sucking energy. They're taking away space. They're, they're not useful to you in any way. Mm, yeah, I can relate so much to that because 
I've learned how to detach from things as well. And my home is very, very minimalist because I only keep the things that really truly bring me joy or that I'm using. And for me, there's the aspect of freedom behind that because I know there is nothing that is holding me back from anything and nothing that is taking my attention. Absolutely. And it also gives me so much space for my creativity and so much space space to think. And uh, it's like basically the white canvas where you can start painting your picture over and over again. Um, mm -hmm. So I completely relate to that. It feels really good. But also the other aspect about it is that everything that you're looking for on the outside, that you may be searching with things that you think that make you happy, you brought the example up of the car. Um, at one point you realize that actually that is not something that is making you happy or you cannot find it on the outside, the happiness, but feeling it in the inside. And I think this is a really long and maybe a even lifelong process of constantly searching um, inside of you what you're maybe looking on the outside so far. And for me, like lately, this aspect of um, security has come up. And I think it's for a lot of people that you search security in a safe home or that's why you accumulate things because you with corona you want to be locked down in a secure and safe space but then also in the end the situation is teaching you that you find your security only inside yourself and you're really secure and i think it, like this moment at the in the world at the moment is really teaching us again to move backwards in in the inside so is that also an aspect that um, you deal with a lot that you uh, keep on searching on your inside for everything from the outside? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a lifelong practice, actually. And you, you, you sort of get surprised by how much you discover. Huh? It's, uh, it's actually quite something because, uh, you know, I, I, I have a, a practice that I call Meet Becky. And, and I know it sounds really... Uh, because I call my brain Becky. I, I separate between me and the thoughts that my brain tells me. So uh, meeting Becky, I do actually twice, at least twice a week, sometimes three times a week. It's a 25 minutes exercise where I sit down and I listen to my brain instead of trying to shut it down or calm it, you know, in a medita meditation practice, I do the opposite. I actually let it go. Uh, and instead of, uh, of you know, uh, slowing it down, I encourage it by constantly letting go of the uh, thoughts that it brings and asking for more so you know two, two rules really one you don't hold on to any thought but you note whatever ones that are important and at the same time you know um you know no thought is uh, allowed to be repeated twice that's when the exercise ends when your brain runs out of ideas and starts to just repeat things and and it's actually quite useful because what happens then is you you know, you start listening to your brain and it says something like, hey, don't forget your 9 a.m. call. And so, yeah, 9 a.m. call, what else? Uh, yeah, your daughter um, thinks you're an idiot. Oh, why would you say that? My daughter thinks I'm an idiot. What else? And so on, right? And then eventually, after a while, you know, your brain starts to run out of ideas. You know, you, you ask it, uh, so what else? And it says, oh, don't forget the 9 a.m. call. And you go like, but you said that before. And it, what else? And it goes like, ah, that's it. I don't have anything more and then when that's done you know after the 25 minutes normally i you know then the first 11 12 minutes my brain is active and then it goes calm completely not because of meditation but because it said what it wanted to say and then i spend maybe another 25 minutes looking at what i wrote down 
And man, there are there is some stupid crap in that stuff, you know, all coming from within me. You know, you're fat, you're old, your uh, your daughter doesn't love you. You know, lots of strange stuff. You know, uh, and and some of it is really deep. Huh? Some of it comes from the conditioning of your childhood. Some of it comes from the you know, the, the external environment and, and what it's putting in your brain. And when you start looking at it with an objective eye, you start to go like, that's not me. This is my mom. That's not me. That's my teacher. That's not me. This is my boss. That's not me. This is the BBC, right? And, you know, and news media. And, and you start to suddenly shed, huh? shed, because the only way to find you is to shed what is not you. And every now and then I stumble on a project that may take me sometimes two and a half, three years, four years, right? But basically something I would discover and go like, oh, hold on, hold on. I love, you know, started with religion and, and I practice many, many religions, as a matter of fact, not only Islam, uh, you know, and I really, really believe in the beauty. I think religions have done many mistakes, but there is a tiny, tiny, tiny uh, a beautiful core in every one of them that is so beautiful to uphold and practice and enjoy. And so, you know, but having been conditioned to grow up in a religious community, you start to actually start to reflect and go like, hold on, hold on. This is not my thinking. This is what I was told, you know, in the temple or the, or the mosque or in the you know church, and this is not really me. And then, you know, after a while, you start to look down and go, oh, no, no, hold on, hold on, this control freakishness, this is not me. This is what I was told by Harvard Business Review. And, right, you continue to learn and shed. And it's endless. You know, I'm 54 now, and I think I have maybe more to shed than uh, what I have shed already. And it's just, uh, you know, after a while, it becomes a lifestyle, really, because at the end of the day, the only practice I think we're here to find or we're here to, to perform is to find ourselves, to mm. find the truth of who we are. Wow. Yeah, such a powerful practice. And uh, it is indeed a lifelong journey because, I mean, we constantly get all these information from outside and all these layers coming in and in again. So then we can reflect on it over and over again, and then new stuff is coming in, new media is coming in, new situations. Um, but I guess once you figured out how to like deal with this and you figured out your practices, then it becomes easier and easier. And at one moment, you know what's on the inside. Do you think you've discovered your inside yet without the layers? It's, it's, it's easier to know what's not you, but it's not easy to bring back you. Mm, I mean, okay. So, so I, I, I'll use a very, uh, um, I'm not ashamed of this example, but, you know, I'm a Middle Eastern, like the, the Latin culture, you know, there is a very strong uh, manly man mentality, you know, the man is a man and, you know, this is what a man is all about. And, you know, the relation between a man and a woman is sort of defined and set in stone and so on and so forth. And yeah, it, it's... Uh, it's multiple layers deep when you start to rediscover and realize, hey, by the way, none of that is true at all, okay? All of that is conditioned. Most of it is cultured, you know, and traditions, and most of it is not even relevant or applicable. And, you know, as I traveled the world, and I traveled almost everywhere in the world, you start to see, but hold on, there are others that see it differently. And, and it takes a very long time for you to say, okay, hold on, now this is my view, right? My view from 
what you were conditioned for as a young person and what you've seen as you traveled and what you read and, you know, meeting with people and having, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, female friends that start to show you a different perspective than what you grew up with and so on and so forth. And all of that is to change that one perspective. And uh, many of us will not be honest about it, huh? but, the, but it requires that honesty of saying, hold on, actually, the real me has a, a very genuine respect for that you know, other uh, half of our species, right? Or, you know, um, there are now many, many halves, but you know what I mean, you know, for me being a, a straight man to have a woman as a relationship in my life uh, is, you know, is the other, is, it requires a lot of understanding of how that other being will be in my life. And then I, it took me a, a layer deep when I started to revisit the whole idea of gender fluidity and the whole idea of the, those freedoms that I, you know, I wasn't exposed to as a young man or as a, as, a, as a child or in my community until very recently. And then I went a layer deeper and I started to explore my own femininity, right? My own feminine qualities and how I interact with the world. And you know, to realize that this bold man with a beard who comes from the Middle East is actually not uh, all masculine. Yeah, I mean, I have male body part and I choose, you know, a straight man sexuality or, a, you know, a straight uh, sexuality, but, but, but there is so much more in terms of masculinity and femininity to me, okay, and that I actually act in life with a lot of feminine qualities and to be able to empower those feminine qualities, whoa, that's a journey of years. Right. I, you know, and, and I, I don't know if this will be the end of it. I'm actually writing about the topic as we speak, and I don't know if that's the end of it. Maybe when that layer is discovered and I'm able to come, you know, into the world with my full qualities, feminine and masculine and show all of them, maybe I'll find that there is another layer to discover. And I, and I think the idea is, as I said, it's, it's just a journey, a journey of attempting to constantly question what your brain tells you is you. Because when you when you remove thought, what's left behind is the real you. Mm. It's so interesting that you say that you're starting to embrace your feminine aspect of you and try to also shed that layer of how a man needs to be. Because I think this is really something that is happening all over the world at the moment. Not maybe in every country, but I can see that big times, especially in Europe or North America, um, that really the the image of a man and what the role of a man is, is changing alongside that women have also changed over the past decades in terms of becoming more independent, more career driven, more, more educated. Um, so I think men also- a bit too much as a matter of fact. You think so? Okay. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I, th I, th I think we're doing a disservice to the, to the feminine both you know both men and women right mm -hmm. i think i think the i think to be successful in the modern world uh, it seems that we have to feature in the modern world with masculine qualities right mm -hmm. so competitiveness discipline uh, uh, you know um, sometimes forcefulness sometimes linear thinking analytical thinking these are all masculine qualities these are associated with the you know the, basically the the there is um, a statistical correlation with the, with the male of the species, if you want. And, and that's actually, believe it or not, not the way to win in the, in the modern world. As a matter of fact, anyone who's ever succeeded in the, to make the modern world better uh, or the world better in general actually relied more on their, fem on their feminine qualities. But, but you see, that's the idea. We, 
we say we want to empower women. So what do women do? They go out in the workplace and they act like men, right? They become CEOs in suits and you know, powerful and strong and so on. And, and that's not what we want to empower. What we want to empower is the feminine. Because if we empower the feminine and both men and women and every other gender started to empower that beautiful quality that we call the feminine, we would have more creativity, we would have more empathy, we would have more intuition, we would have more uh, inclusion, we would have more, uh, you know, uh, sensitivity and, and, uh, and, you know, recognition of the, of the non-physical and so many, many things. Huh? And if we, can, if we can empower those qualities, then then the playing field becomes fair then suddenly everyone everyone whether man woman or whatever we choose to identify as everyone suddenly has a fair playing field where if you can become yourself a mix of masculine and feminine that self is needed in some configuration that makes the world a better place and i think i think the idea is by me trying to empower my feminine i'm also asking every person man or woman to empower their feminine too uh, because i think there is we're, we're a little too hyper masculine in our world today mm, i completely agree to that and i think we need so much more in men and in women that feminine qualities but i sometimes have the feeling that since the feminine was or the feminine in business was oppressed for so long that maybe it's a necessary step in between in order to for women to even be seen and to get there to go over the top basically and create that imbalance so there is some attention on that topic so we can balance out balance it out again and i hope for the future i i i, I think not i think not really I'm sorry to you. <laughs> okay yeah, interesting I, so 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 think so think think has ever changed the world okay i don't actually think i think the world we've built we've built with masculinity right but the but the beauty and advancements that really happened the, the things we're proud of we built on femininity we have to recognize that okay we have to recognize that we don't need more of a masculine world okay so gandhi was more feminine than masculine no doubt about it you know some people will debate gandhi's whatever you know there are talks about him not being respectful of women or whatever but what he did to preserve his country through non-violent uh, resistance okay that's that's highly anchored in the feminine it has empathy in it even for the enemy it has communication skills it has intuition you know it, it has so many feminine qualities to it that you have to find hmm, to become Gandhi, hmm? even Steve Jobs, which is normally, uh, uh, you know, portrayed as uh, this obnoxious, hyper masculine male. Not at all. The reasons Steve Jobs was successful is because of his feminine side, his creativity, empathy for his users needs, his, you know, understanding of beauty and colors and shapes and simplicity and so on. Definitely, definitely feminine qualities. And I think what we're trying to say to see here is that, uh, you know, there was a fantastic book uh, called The Master and the Emissary, uh, uh, The Master and the Emissary, which basically says there is feminine quality, feminine and masculine in all of us. Hmm? And we need both of them in all of us, but we need the feminine to lead. We need the feminine to look at things and say, mm, now with my intuition, with my understanding of the big picture, with my inclusion, mm, I think the right thing to do is to not kill the enemy, right? And then the masculine would start to say, okay, now that we have awareness, which is feminine, mm, 
Doing is the masculine side. Let me find out how not to kill the enemy, right? You know, it's it. One of them has to start, and the other follows. The problem with our world today is that the masculine decides, and the masculine is all about numbers and and forcefulness and discipline and pushy and right? all of those things. This is why we're destroying the planet. The, you know, because what you tell the masculine maximize profit, they'll maximize profit. They'll you know produce a ton of plastic every minute. Mm -hmm but then maximize profit. Now, someone needs to say, hey, 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 look at the world around us. We actually think that keeping the planet is more important than maximizing profit. And then the masculine will say, mm, okay, save the planet. I'll put my head to it and I will work on it and make it happen. And so this is why I'm actually resisting. I'm, I'm saying women shouldn't play this game. Women should win or whoever has more feminine than masculine in him okay or in her should they should win by playing to their strength and their strengths are the real them and the real us is not what work tells us to be it's who we really are and who we really are always has a feminine side to it mm. and i hope really hope that gets into the consciousness of more and more people so we can both embrace all aspects of ourselves. So it sounds like you've done a lot of work on yourself and that you constantly keep on working on yourself and practicing a lot of different tools. So I'm wondering, you already mentioned it before, you were really unhappy when you were in your 20s and you had all the things, all the status symbols that you thought that would make you happy. So was there like one breaking moment when you suddenly realized that you cannot continue like this anymore and that something had to change in your life? Yeah, I remember that vividly, actually. It was my daughter. My daughter is a sunshine itself, right? Like, if you define life, life is my daughter, right? And she's always full of fun and energy and, you know. And, I, uh, you know, I remember, I, uh, um, you know, I was a very serious businessman, uh, always busy. And she comes to me on a Saturday and she's basically... Uh, going like, Papa, you know, today we're going to go this and do that. And, da, 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 da. and she's just literally jumping up and down. And I'm stuck in that little email or whatever crap I was doing. So I look at her and I say, Aya, can we please be serious for a while? Okay. And she was five. She was five. What's serious? You stupid, crazy bum. Right. And I remember vividly that my heart broke because I could see her. Huh? I could see her heartbreak. I could see her face turn uh, sad. Okay. And I suddenly woke up. I, I just, I just looked at me and I said, I don't want this person. I don't like you. Like what you've just done. I don't like this anymore. You can be grumpy. That's your choice. You can't make your daughter suffer because you're grumpy. And I think that was the beginning of me saying this is it. Uh, I need to find a way. And it wasn't, it wasn't an easy path, I'll tell you. It took me 12 years of research. Uh, but, you know, diligent as I am, I still, you know, went, went the course, you know. It took me, I, I think, at least four years before I started to figure, figure anything out. Mm -hmm. uh, simply because my, I don't speak the language. I mean, as, as, you, as I told you, I'm spiritual and religious and so on and so forth. Uh, but I don't speak that language. I'm an engineer, a mathematician, a software developer, a business executive. This is the worst combination you can ever see, right? Because basically, it really is what's horrible, huh? Because basically, you want you want to understand every tiny detail of everything. You know, if somebody tells me to say um, 
You go like, what on? <laughs> how the machine works, right? Yeah, and you're like, seriously, and I resisted and resisted and I still, I still don't say on, but you know, I, at least I understand how the machine works. And, and so I, my, my research was really trying to get me to a place where I understand, where I could actually relate, where I could actually uh, figure what's wrong with my own machine so that I can fix it. And, and so this is where the whole journey started. So what were some things that you did or some thoughts or helpful tips that you can give what can help people who are maybe at the point of their life when they realize, okay, I really don't like that person I am at the moment and it's really time for me to change something because I feel like often you're at that point and then you realize it and then you say, okay, now what? Like, what am I going to do? How do I find me? How do I get to this happiness in my life again? How do I, um, yeah, feel fulfilled and happy? What What are some, some steps that a person can do at this moment? How much time do we have? I'll try to make it simple. Uh, so, so, so that is the first beginning, the first step. The, the first step is to refuse unhappiness. Remember, we are conditioned in the modern world to believe that unhappiness is okay. It's just the tax we pay on our path to success. That's absolute crap, right? The truth is, if I was ever successful and if I have ever reached, you know, the positions I've reached in my, in my, uh, you know, corporate life or, you know, any success I've achieved, it was because I was happy, right? Because when you're happy, you attract happy people around you. We're all energized. We all do things together. You know, we, you know, my customers loved me. My team loved me, you know, uh, at least enjoyed working with me and so on and so forth, right? So, so, so those things are important. Happiness is not a luxury. Huh? And, and you have to imagine that when you, um, you know, have a little bit of a headache, you do something about it. You stop because healthy is the optimum form of uh, performance in life. If you're not healthy, you're not performing. If you were in the jungle, you would be eaten. And so we're, we're conditioned to believe that if we're not healthy, we do something about it. Okay. Uh, when we're not happy, we don't. But, but it's the same. Huh? Happy is the ultimate form of presence where you can actually make a difference to the world uh, because the, you, you know you're engaged you're energetic you're not wasting your brain cycles and things that are not necessary and so on but we don't make that choice so so the number one step is to make that choice it's to say you know what that's it you know in my in my heart it was my daughter's uh, smile breaking because of me Okay, but it could be any other reason for anyone else. But you have to recognize that until you make the choice and make happiness your priority, it's not going to happen. It has to become a priority, right? Now, number two is to understand that happiness is highly predictable. It's, it's as predictable, okay? And, and in very simple uh, terms, you know, I'm sure wherever you are in the world listening to us, uh, there must be 100,000 personal trainers in your neighborhood. And those 100,000 will each of them tell you that fitness is a very complicated thing and you have to move this muscle exactly that way. And, you know, I have to shout at you in the gym. And No, fitness is not that complicated, honestly, right? Fitness is all about make it your priority, eat healthy, and work out four to five times a week. That's it, really, okay? In a nutshell, yeah, of course, if you want to be a bodybuilder, then maybe moving the muscle exactly the right way is important. But if you want to be fit, that's it. Make it your priority, eat healthy, and and uh, and uh, and work out four to five times a week. Happiness is exactly the same. Make it your priority, 
okay? Which, by the way, means eat healthy, which, by the way, means make choices in your life that make that, that conform to that priority. If you're interviewing for another job, don't interview for $5 more, okay? Interview for a place that will make you happier because if it is truly your priority, you're going to make decisions based on that. And then go to the happiness gym four to five times a week. Hmm? If you go to the happiness gym four to five times a week, I promise you within a couple of weeks, you'll be happier, right? Yeah, you may not have a six pack of happiness. You're not going to become a Jedi master of happiness, but you're going to be happier. What's the happiness gym? Listen to a, a talk, you know, listen to a podcast. My podcast, I, I will have to say my podcast is making a ton of people happy. Uh, so, so uh, or, you know, or just be with people that are happy or read a book or watch a documentary. There is a ton of resources out there, right? We most, we waste half of our day watching, you know, women squat on Instagram. Instead of doing that, watch people telling you how to find inspiration and happiness and you'll become happier. Now that's, that's number two. Hmm? Number three is learn how the machine works. And the machine is very simple. Hmm? The machine basically says that happiness is equal to or greater than the difference between the events of your life and your expectation of how life should be. So it's really very simple. So my couldn't understand the spiritual and mystical talk. I had to summarize happiness in an equation. Okay? The equation is very, very straightforward. H, happiness, is equal to or greater than E minus E, events minus expectations. That's it. Now... There has never been an, a, a, a minute in your life where you felt unhappy because life gave you something to be unhappy about. There is nothing that life can give you to be unhappy about. It's, an, it's a comparison between what life gives you and you what, what you want life to be. If life gives you rain and you want to water your plant, you're happy. If it gives you rain and you want to sit in the sun, you're unhappy. Right? Rain itself doesn't make you happy or unhappy. It's that comparison between events and expectations. Now, when you understand that, you understand the definition of happiness, the calm and peacefulness that we feel when we're okay with life, and you understand the definition of unhappiness. Unhappiness, in that case, being a survival mechanism, being, being your brain alerting you that something is not exactly right. Okay? And when you, when you get that, suddenly everything becomes clear. We're not searching for fun and parties, and that's fun, that's pleasure. Hmm? We're, we're searching for calm and peace. Calm and peace is what? Is in being okay with life as it is. When, when you and I were talking about being minimalists, hmm? minimalists, minimalists are happy not because they have everything, but because they love what they have. Okay? It's as simple as that. Huh? So if, you, if you look at life around you and you're okay with life, even though life is not ever perfect, you're going to be happy. Hmm? If you're unhappy, hmm, then it's a survival mechanism. It's your brain telling you, something is wrong, like a fire alarm. When something is wrong, like a fire alarm, what do you do? You do something about it. You go like, oh, okay, there is a fire alarm. I'm not going to sit here and complain about it and listen to the noise. I'm going to go out and verify if there is a fire. So if something shows up in your life that is telling you you have a reason to be unhappy, do something about it. It's really not that complicated. Yeah, it's not always going to be fixed, but just trying to do something about it instead of sitting in the corner and whining and complaining, by definition, is going to start to make you a little happier. Thank you for sharing this. And so basically, if I understood your equation right, is that having expectations on life, whatever it is, is basically the killer for happiness, right? Like the more expectations I have, 
uncertain things to happen or things or people to be a certain way, um, the more the possibility that my expectations get disappointed and the more that I seek the external happiness and the unhappier I am. Is that basically the turning around of the equation? Yeah, that is actually the truth. I mean, I'm, I didn't make the machine, okay? But of course, in the modern world, they tell us, what, can, what do you mean by that, right? You know, we, have, we need to have high expectations so that we achieve and become big and have wealth and have money and blah, 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 and have the taller girlfriend. No, not true at all, okay? The truth is you need to have ambitions, but ambitions are different than expectations, okay? Expectations make you happy or unhappy. If you, if you go to India, Hmm? Uh, and, you know, not everyone expects to eat every day, right? So if you give someone who didn't expect to eat today, you give them a bowl of rice, and they'll be very, very happy, right? Because the expectation has been beaten so much. They didn't expect to eat. They got a bowl of rice. You and I and, and, and others in the modern world, hmm? we, uh, you know, we sit on, you know, switch on our phones and order from Uber Eats or Deliveroo or whatever, you know, app you have in your uh, in your uh, in your country, and within minutes, poof, you know, your food is uh, is at your home, and we complain, we complain. Ah, how come I need to be in a restaurant to enjoy my life? This is horrible, right? And if you if you were not expecting to eat, this would be amazing, right? So expectations, honestly, if you lower your expectations from life and not feel entitled all the time, you'll be very happy, right? Ambition, on the other hand, is a different thing. Ambition is a target, right? I, I set out after I lost my wonderful son to make people happy. Right? I wrote his, you know, his his method that he taught me in a book. I, you know, became an international bestseller, and I started with a mission that was called 10 million happy. My dream was to to reach 10 million people with this message of happiness. We reached 10 million in six weeks. Actually, we reached 87 million in six weeks. Right, so the team got together and we said, okay, you know, miscalculated. What are we going to do? Let's raise the target. It didn't go from ten to twelve. From, you know, if we were already at eighty-seven, we didn't go to ninety. Right? We said a billion happy. A billion happy is crazy because it took Jesus two thousand years to reach a billion people. I'm never going to reach a billion people. Right? But it's a nice ambition. Ambition is a directional target to, you know, strive for. This is hey, this is what I'm going to spend the next period of my life doing. If I miss it, do you think I'll be unhappy? No, my expectation is realistic. My expectation is I'm going to wake up in the morning and do the best I can. I'm going to talk to you, Leandra, and I'm going to try and put my heart in it. Right? Maybe someone will listen to us and become happier. If that happened, I've achieved my mission. Okay? And that's the difference. Expectations are not supposed to... Ambitions are supposed to, 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 to stretch us, to make us change the world. Right? Or our little world, it doesn't matter. Hmm? Expectations are the way we look at life and say, have I done well today? Okay, should I be okay? Should I be regretful? Should I be shameful? Should I be scared? Should I be worried? Right? All of these are against expectations, not ambitions. And against expectations, expectations need to be realistic. Now, you have to understand that some of the highest quality of living in the world is in Scandinavian countries. And yet, some of the highest suicide rates are in Scandinavian countries as well. And you have to wonder why. I mean, does, does, do, do humans ever feel that they've had enough? No, the expectations keep rising. It's almost like you have a service level agreement with a telco. 
It's like, hey, you, you know, now you're giving me, it's, it's really weird. I don't know where we get that from. Huh? Now you're giving me healthcare and job security. And, you know, you can even send me to a vacation in, in, in Spain if I'm depressed. Some countries actually do that. Huh? If you're depressed or you're approaching depression, you, they send you to a vacation in Spain. Come, you know, country uh, government paid. Hmm? And yet, when you have all of that, what you do, you internalize it, you normalize it, and you say, ah, but my girlfriend's annoying. Okay. I mean, girlfriends are supposed to be annoying. Boyfriends are supposed to be annoying. Bosses are supposed to be bossy. Right? This is life. Life is about not being perfect. Sometimes, you know, they're not really annoying. You're stupid and, you know, you need to work things out and it's fine. This is how life is. There is no service level agreement. There is no entitlement that life will be okay. Right? And when you realize that, your ambition is that life is amazing, but when the expectation that life should be sometimes, will sometimes have some kinks in it, then when those kinks show up, what do you do? You handle them that's a survival mechanism. Oh, something went wrong. My brain is alerting me through shame. Maybe I should pick up the phone and apologize to my friend. Right? Something is not going right. I'm not prepared for my speech tomorrow. Perfect. My brain alerts me through anxiety or fear. Maybe I should sit down and prepare. It's really not that complicated. Mm. You already shared so many tips and advices on how we can get to that happy state and what we can do also to shed these layers. And you shared your equation um, on how to achieve happiness and wrote the book about it. So is there any other message in your book um, on how we can become more happy maybe that you would like to share that we haven't spoken about yet? Well, I, my, my, my very last sentence in the book, and I think it really summarizes the whole thing, I, I say happiness is found in the truth. Okay? I, basically, the sentence says happiness is found in the truth. It really is that simple. But the truth pisses you off. Right? The truth always sets you free, but it pisses you off. Okay? And I think the reality is if we learn to handle the truth, hmm, We will be happy, happy as in contented and peaceful all the time. I mean, let, let me, let me uh, give you an example. I'm 54, right? Uh, I have been, uh, you know, never exposed to a pandemic before. By the way, the reason why people are so worried about the pandemic is because it's the first, right? For every single one that you know, this is the first pandemic in their life. I mean, very few people who are elderly have seen maybe the final traces of uh, 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 smallpox or something, right? If I was born in the year 1900, hmm, by age 54, I would have witnessed World War I and World War II. I would have witnessed the Spanish flu and the, uh, the, the smallpox. Together, those would have killed 970 million people, and I would have witnessed the Great Depression, right? That is how tough life can be, right? And we completely internalize that. We completely forget that. We, we say, ah, you know, there, you know if, if, you, if you, 970 million people died in those 50 years on a world population that never exceeded 1.6 billion, right? That basically means one of every two or three people that you know died, right? Now, take COVID. 7.8 million people died in 2020. We don't know yet the statistics of 2021. 7.8 is nothing. Human mortality is more than 70 million people a year. 
right? It's not nothing because every every human life matters. Hmm? But let's put things in perspective. The the biggest cause of death hmm, is so is is uh, you know is orders of magnitude bigger than that, which is heart disease, and we don't talk about it. We don't even do anything about it. Hmm? And now, I I tell people openly. I say. If, if you're not diagnosed yourself, you haven't lost a loved one, and I hope you haven't lost a loved one, and you haven't lost your economic livelihood to the point that you're unable to listen to podcasts, right? Because if you're listening to a podcast, that means you're okay, by the way. If you're not one of the above, then the extent, the extent of the, of the pandemic for you, and for me, by the way, is you're being forced to stay at home, uh, work on Zoom, order from Deliveroo, and binge watch Netflix. This is it, really. That's it. Right? And yet we're unable to grow up and stop being six-year-olds complaining and say, you know what? Life sometimes throws us a bad blow. What are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? Hmm? So the truth is very straightforward. This is the truth. The truth is regardless of how locked down you are and how miserable it is in your country or whatever, if you're not diagnosed yourself, you haven't lost a loved one and you haven't lost your economic livelihood, you're absolutely fine. As a matter of fact, that truth will only tell you one thing and one thing only, which is I should be very grateful that the world is going to pieces and I'm fine. That's the only reflected reflection of the truth if we're willing to accept the truth, okay? And the truth is, we're entitled. People, you know, gra- your great-grandmother hmm, went through all that stuff that I told you about. And we haven't for our entire lifetime, and yet we're entitled. We think we have a service-level agreement with life. It's like, hey, I'm 54, I've never seen pandemics. What is this? This is not what I signed up for. What life? Right? Can show me the contract. I need compensation. Like, well, what? You're locking me down? Oh, and Netflix is not, you know, the new Rick and Morty is not released yet. What's wrong with you? Right? That's crazy. That's crazy. Just the fact that I can talk to you, Leandra, that I have a machine that I can talk to you when you're half away, uh, half, half a world away from me, hmm? that there are others listening to us, that I have water in the water tank. Okay? Just think about that. Think about if you're near a refugee camp and there is COVID. Think about, really? And then suddenly, life becomes easy. And so what about those who have been diagnosed? Hmm? So what about those who, lo- who lost a loved one? What about those who lost their economically life- economic livelihood? Yet another reason for your gratitude, but also, because you're not one of them, but also a reason for compassion. Do something about it, right? I mean, honestly, how many of us know someone who lost their job and while our cost of living has been reduced, none, none of us picks up the phone and says, hey, if I lend you 100 euros, would that be okay? But do it. Make the, you know, I, I say this is the golden age of empathy because we can feel the pain of others. Hmm? Turn it into the golden age of compassion. Do something about it. And that hmm, is a realization of the truth that we are fortunate. Others are not. Hmm? And yes, it's annoying like hell to binge watch Netflix. It's annoying like hell to work on Netflix, oh, sorry, on, on Zoom. But hey, the truth is, this is what life is giving us right now. Can we accept it and move on? And if we can learn to accept it and make the best out of it, life becomes easier and happier. Mm, yeah, and that puts the, the bridge back to the beginning. Like it's already inside of you, like fi- finding this peace inside of you and that acceptance of life inside of you. And then also 
being so grateful for what you already have and not looking too much on the outside for what life is maybe needing to give you or the expectations again. So thank you so much for sharing this. Um, yeah, so now if people get curious to find more about you, we mentioned it, you have a book, you have a podcast, um, you do so much amazing work. Where can people find you? What's the best uh, place to connect with you online? So I, I will openly say, and it's not pitching anything, that my podcast, Slow Mo, is really changing life. So, so I, Slow Mo is the collection of all of the amazingly wise friends I've made uh, during my lifetime, right? So people from Edith Ager, who is a 93-year-old psychologist that was you know, in, uh, in, you know, in Auschwitz when she was 16, to Matthew Ricard, the monk who's defined as the happiness, happiness, happiest man in the world, to everyone in between, right? And they really, really are wise to the point that I frequently cry and I always learn something new. So please do yourself a favor, make slow-mo part of that happiness gym, okay? So, you know, it, it, you're not going to regret it. Uh, also, I'm available. So, you know, you know my, my book is available if you want to read Soul for Happy, uh, available in 31 languages. So if you want to read that, but all of the content of it is available on YouTube videos and content online. If you're not a reader or if you don't want to buy a book, that's fine, absolutely. And uh, and then find me on social media if you want to uh, ask me anything or just connect and say hi. That would be amazing. I'm Mo underscore Gaudet on Instagram, uh, Mo Gaudet on LinkedIn, Mo.Gaudet.Official on Facebook, and M Gaudet on Twitter. And I do actually answer most of the questions I get. Uh, and I definitely answer most of the Uh, of the messages I get. So uh, don't be a stranger. I'm, uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to stay in touch. Mm, yeah, and I can just completely agree. Uh, Slow-mo podcast is beautiful. And that's how I found you, actually. So I'm super yes, grateful. <laughs> I was yes. honest. <laughs> so you can also listen to this episode. And I'm super happy and grateful you make this podcast because it does change life. I love listening to it and all the inspiration I get. And thank you so much for being you and all the wisdom that you share. Also in my podcast today, it was such a pleasure. And yeah, I'm happy to hear more from you. <laughs> Absolutely, you will. Coffee soon. <laughs>